Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and you're very welcome to this live edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Fine Gael Aradesh in City West in Dublin. I'm here with my colleagues, political editor Pat Leahy and deputy political editor Thea Kelly, uh, the political journalist of the year according to this year's journalism awards this week. So congratulations to him. Uh, in a little while we'll be discussing a very interesting proposal which arose in the leader's speech by Leo Varadkar at the Aradesh today. But first we were joined by Simon Coveney who was talking to both myself and to Fiac about a very interesting week in Brexit politics. So we're delighted to be joined by the Tánaiste Simon Coveney and we couldn't really have anybody better uh, on our podcast this week than the Tánaiste given the events which have unfolded over the last four or five days. You're very welcome. Thanks, you. I'm delighted um, to be here. I'm going to hand over a little bit to Fiat, by the way. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Two congratulations. Yeah. You're doing well today, Fiat. Um I'm going to hand over to Fiat for the first couple of questions, and I may butt in and try and make a pest to myself at some point. Right. Fiat, far ahead. Obviously, as you said, Tánaiste, it's been a huge <laughs> week on the Brexit front. The withdrawal agreement was published, agreed by the UK cabinet, spectacle to the European Council. The big question mark remains, as it always did, I suppose, over the House of Commons. Are you more hopeful towards the end of the week that that deal can get through the House of Commons than you may have been, for example, Wednesday, Thursday, when it looked like everything was quite fraught in London? Uh, the straight answer to that question is yes. Um, but I think it's that's not the full answer because... I wasn't surprised at what happened in London, you know, and I don't think anybody who's been involved in this process uh, would have been either. Um, so we've been working for the last two years, but in particular for the last year, uh, with the Michel Barnier task force, who are the, effectively the EU negotiating and the Irish negotiating team, and also working with the British side to try and explore ways in which we could solve, you know, really complex problems uh, in a way that mitigates against bad outcomes for this island in the future as an unintended consequence of Brexit, because I think nobody's looking for bad outcomes. Um, but when you have a country and an economy the size and scale of Britain leaving a union that it's been part of for the last 43 or 44 years, um, well then trying to avoid fallout in the context of that exit and trying to ma make sure that there's a platform for a progressive future relationship between Britain and the EU is really complicated. Um, and a lot of Brexiteers in Westminster were simply avoiding that complication and that detail. Um, and so once this deal was done, and it was done and finalized this week, when we got a legal text of a withdrawal treaty that the British government signed up to, that the EU is clearly going to support as well, uh, then that really was a reality check mm. confronting the British Parliament with actually the, the full detail and complexity of Brexit. Mm. And now there's a choice to be made. And we knew that this was going to be tough for the Prime Minister. She admitted it herself that there were going to be difficult days ahead. Uh, but I think she has shown resilience and strength and political you know, courage and powers of persuasion. Uh, I certainly think she is stronger now than she was 48 hours ago, that's for sure. Can I ask you, you yourself have 
dealt face to face with many of those leading Brexiteers. Boris Johnson was your counterpart for a time. David Davis was the Brexit secretary for a time. Dominic Raab was the Brexit secretary until last week. But in your dealings with them, did you kind of sit back and go, these guys really don't get what this is all about. They're not serious. They don't realize what Brexit entails and they're not taking the backstop seriously. Did you ever have that impression coming away from any of your meetings with those people? Well, first of all, the three people you outline are all decent people and I had good relationships with all of them. Um, um, but I think we come at Brexit from a very different perspective. You know, for us, it's about trying to maintain the closest possible relationship with the United Kingdom while respecting the fact that they're leaving. Um, but I think the ideology that drives some of the Brexiteers is not about looking at the detail. It's about looking to the horizon for Britain's place in the world in the future and breaking free from the shackles of the EU. And, you know, it's a language that, you know, we just don't relate to in Ireland. Because, they use that language because, too in because, meetings. Well, um, I, it's more the sentiment behind it. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, and I had a number of meetings with David Davis in particular, uh, uh, as I say, a really nice person, uh, and, and I think a, a, a politician of conviction. Um, but I, um, I don't believe um, that, um, that the priorities that we have in these negotiations to protect a peace process, to ensure that no physical border infrastructure re-emerges on this island, uh, doing that in a way that doesn't undermine the sovereignty uh, in any way uh, of the United Kingdom as a whole, including Northern Ireland, um, and the complexity around how you deal with that. You know, instead you got confronted with statements like, well, we're not going to put up a border, so if you don't put up a border, what's the problem? Mm. Which I think the Prime Minister herself mm. has referred to as, you know, not reality. Mm. Um, when you understand how world trade works and if products move from one customs union into another or one single market into another, uh, how you avoid border infrastructure is, is very, very complicated. So, so I, I think that what's happening now in Westminster, and people shouldn't be surprised by this, uh, is particularly within the Conservative Party, uh, there is a choice to be made. Uh, and I think the Prime Minister has outlined this in very stark terms. You know, this is the only deal on the table. It's taken two years to negotiate. It's not an EU offer to Britain. It is a negotiated position where both sides have had to compromise to try and facilitate the other uh, in the interests of a positive future relationship. And, the, uh, and if they reject it uh, in, in, in Westminster, uh, well then the only alternatives are a somewhat chaotic period uh, in British politics where nobody knows what's happening on Brexit. Uh, where people are trying to scramble sort of skeleton solutions together, which clearly won't provide the kind of solutions that we need. Uh, or else we start to see the whole Brexit process unravelling uh, and increasing calls for, for uh, a new referendum and going back to the people and so on. So, you know, I think that Theresa May's argument, she is the only person with a plan. Uh, I think it's a plan that's fair. Uh, and that involves compromise on all sides, which of course Brexit was always going to demand. Uh, and I believe that her argument uh, to actually get support, get a majority support in Westminster uh, for this deal uh, will get stronger, not weaker in the next just, few days. Just one point on the, on the border that the, the teacher yesterday said that in a situation where we have no deal, it would be very difficult to see how we avoid a hard border, what the government has been working towards for the last number of years. He said that the UK would have to go to WTO, we would have to protect the safety of the single market, which means there would probably be some sort of border infrastructure. So the government has resisted making any sort of preparations for that eventuality, but given that it's now a possibility, 
isn't it about time that the government starts looking at how we actually police the border if we're to protect the single market? No. Because, because we're not putting border infrastructure up on this island again. Uh, but, but how we avoid doing that becomes much more complicated if this deal isn't ratified and supported in Westminster. Uh, but if you listen to, you know, Karen Bradley, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, she, she has come out quite directly and said, deal or no deal, we have to ensure that there's no border infrastructure on the island of Ireland, because she knows the consequences of that in terms of community relations and the kind of corrosive impact that that could have uh, on relationships on this island, particularly for people living in border counties. Uh, we know from experience why we cannot allow that happen. But how does but it, it But it becomes, it becomes much, much more complicated and difficult to find a solution to that issue without implementing this deal, because we have spent two years dealing with the complexity of this issue, trying to take on board unionist opinion, nationalist opinion, and many others who are offering opinion as well. And we have come to an agreement as to how to do that. And that is why instead of talking past this agreement and talking about what ifs if the agreement, is, if the agreement isn't ratified, I think we should be talking up and explaining why this agreement makes sense uh, and why it actually protects the island of Ireland as a whole, economically and socially and from a peace process perspective, in a way that I think is in everybody's interest. Uh, and, you know, there is, there, there's about three weeks to go before there's a vote in Westminster on this issue. Uh, and instead of actually talking it down, uh, we should be talking this deal up. And I fully understand why you're holding the line on that. That's completely understandable. But isn't the reality that we are at this... E the end game which we're at now means that the, the possibility of no deal is more likely than it's ever been before, largely because of the clock and nothing else. Um, and the reality is the EU is making preparations for no deal. And do we not need to start making those preparations too? Well, I think that... I think that assumes... Contingency. Yeah, uh, well, sorry, f first of all, we have put more contingency plans in place than any other country in the European Union by far, including Britain. Um, you know, we have already signalled that we're going to take on 1,077 extra inspectors in our ports and airports. Um, we have committed to spending tens of millions of euros in terms of physical infrastructure around inspection bays, new parking systems in Dublin Port and Rossell Airport, uh, uh, and new technology uh, and people behind that technology uh, in Dublin Airport to deal potentially uh, with having to, uh, to reintroduce customs checks and more uh, sanitary and phytosanitary checks and so on. But we have focused on the east-west contingency uh, that may well be triggered. Uh, we've always said uh, that uh, the border infrastructure question goes way beyond trade and preparation to facilitate trade. Uh, it's something much more core to Irish people than that, uh, and indeed to many British people who live uh, in Northern Ireland. Uh, and so, you know, I think the assumption that some people are making here is if this deal doesn't get support in Westminster, and I believe it still can, um, that all of a sudden we will just then fall into a no-deal Brexit where Britain crashes out. There are many other scenarios that could happen in a no-deal scenario. I don't believe that there's a majority or anything close to it in Westminster that would allow a no-deal Brexit to happen on the 29th of March. Uh, and I think what we would see is a, an initial chaos in terms of the, the British political system, and then we would see Britain looking for ways of avoiding and that no could deal include scenario. an election, Which a referendum, all a sorts of, of Article 50, all those, all those sorts Absolutely, of all sorts of things. So, you know, the pressure is in London here, not in Dublin. Mm. Now, we've done our deal. We have worked for the last two years to get that in place. We have support for that in our parliament. 
uh, and we now want, and we have full support for it across the European Union as well. So, so we now want to defend and persuade people in Britain and in Ireland, if we can, that this is a good deal for everybody. It's a balanced deal that involves everybody compromising somewhat, and it confronts the hardline Brexiteers who always simplified this issue into something that it wasn't with the truth of what now they have to face. And just to be absolutely clear, there are reports in the UK over the last 24 hours that there is a group has formed within the current UK cabinet of ministers who are seeking to persuade Theresa May to go back to the table. I'm guessing you're saying that that's not an option. You see, this is, this is going back to the mistake that's been made over and over and over again. It's essentially Britain negotiating with itself again, you know, which was never the issue, actually. Because the real negotiation was always in Brussels between the British government and the EU negotiating team led by Michel Barnier. But there are many people who seem to believe that if Britain can actually somehow agree and get a majority behind one solution, but that's it then. That's the end of it. As if the other you know, 27 countries have no say at all uh, through, through Michel Barnier. Like, this involves a compromise between Britain and the EU a series of compromises to try and accommodate each other's political difficulties and so on. And that's what's been happening. Um, so this idea that now, after two years of negotiation, somehow four or five cabinet ministers can, can negotiate a different outcome uh, and agree it themselves and then expect the EU to just sign up to that, uh, I just think it's, it's not living in the real world. What there is a possibility to do, uh, and what, of course, the British government, I think, needs to think about, uh, and I'm sure the Prime Minister has already, uh, is there are two documents here. One of, one of those documents, the legal text of the withdrawal treaty, is signed off on, has been agreed, and in my view will not be reopened. The second document then is a political declaration on the future relationship. The negotiating teams deliberately decided to publish a skeleton document there that needs to be fleshed out and will probably double or quadruple in size by the time um, uh, these two documents get, get ratified. Uh, and I think there is an opportunity um, to work and to flesh out and hopefully to provide reassurance on what the future relationship is likely to look like uh, by actually getting the kind of content that both the EU and the United Kingdom would like to see uh, in this future relationship declaration that hopefully will be able to settle nerves uh, and bring more people on side for both documents. So you're saying that that document, the short document of the future relationship that's up for discussion in the next few weeks oh yeah absolutely and uh, so it was always said that that initially when the the detail of the long document which is the withdrawal treaty which has the irish protocol in it you know protecting the border protecting the common travel area uh strong language around you know britain being used as a land bridge for ireland to get product to and from this country um you know protecting citizens rights in northern ireland uh, and so on all the all that that strong important legal text that uh, that allow us to reassure Irish people that they're protected through Brexit. That's all in the withdrawal treaty text, which is a legal document. The other document is a political statement or declaration, uh, which doesn't take legal effect. Um, and uh, deliberately the negotiating teams agreed to simply publish for the moment a, a, a sort of a, an outline of that document, which is relatively short, but outlines the areas where there's going to be a need for agreement in the future, whether that's fishing, whether it's aviation, whether it's financial services, whether but it's data protection. This is largely aspirational rather so than binding, though. It's, yeah, a but, it's a statement but I think, of objectives. But, no, but I think people in Westminster have always said to me, and they're very reasonable on this point, you know, it's not reasonable to expect us to ratify a withdrawal treaty unless we know 
uh, the direction in which we're going on the future relationship. Uh, and so I think there is an opportunity to, to provide more reassurance to many people in the UK who feel that they can only sign up to a withdrawal treaty or a divorce legal arrangement, if you want to call it that, uh, if they know that what follows is a negotiation that can, allow, uh, that can allow them to move Britain and the relationship between Britain and the EU in the direction that they're comfortable with. Obviously. Uh, and I think, I think that will uh, be negotiated uh, 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 in the coming days uh, in, in the build-up to the, to the European Council meeting. Obviously, the Irish government's engagement on the withdrawal agreement was quite intense because it, you know, the Irish border and the Irish backstop was the issue around everything yeah. else pivoted. Do you think that our engagement in any renegotiation of the accompanying political declaration will be as intense, or are you happy as a government to leave that between... I know everything was always between Michel Barnier and the UK government, but will the Irish government yeah. play a less prominent role in any renegotiation of that document than it did with the shaping yeah. of the withdrawal agreement? I think that's probably a fair comment. Um, you know, I mean, we will, of course, have, have a say there. Uh, and, you know, because Ireland is so close to the UK, a lot of other countries in the European Union talk to me or talk to, to Leo or talk to Helen McEntee to try to get their head around British politics and how it's working and how it's thinking and so on uh, in terms of the EU approach uh, towards trying to get compromises that we can all sign up to. So, so I think Ireland will, will still be quite central in these discussions, but I think it is true to say that you know, we were uniquely involved in the discussion around the, the withdrawal treaty because you know, it really only dealt with four key issues. You know, citizens' rights of EU citizens in the UK and UK citizens and the rest of the, uh, are in the EU uh, after Brexit. It dealt with the financial settlement question. It dealt with the transition period question. And then after that, it was all Irish issues. Uh, and so, you know, we really have worked intimately with the Barnier task force, talking to them virtually every day, trying to get the language right. Uh, and I don't expect that we would have that kind of intimate engagement now, because of course, lots of other countries uh, will want to have an input into what the future relationship looks like uh, with the priority in mind of protecting the integrity of the single market and, and our EU customs union first and foremost, uh, so that the countries that are staying in the EU mm. aren't being disadvantaged by facilitating a country that's leaving. Uh, but at the same time, I think the, the strong view that I pick up from countries around uh, the European Union uh, is that we want to try to facilitate Britain with generosity. Um, so that we can facilitate a future relationship that we can all live with uh, and that doesn't damage relations uh, 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 between Britain and the EU into the future. So, Robert, you, were, you were pictured at the match of the evening with Arlene Foster. Um, you, in your role as Minister for Foreign Affairs, you engage extensively with parties in Northern Ireland as well. Do you think that their mind is definitely settled now to vote against this deal in Westminster? Or is there any way they could be convinced to vote for it? We see business interests in Northern Ireland. Those are farmers' union coming out in favour of this deal. Is the DUP, is that ship sailed or can they yet be convinced? I mean, the honest answer is I don't know. Um, that's a matter for the DUP and I certainly... If I started telling the DUP how to behave or vote, uh, they'd probably do the other, uh, do the opposite. Um, but you know, I, I, you know, we have a responsibility to reach out to all parties in Northern Ireland, to the DUP, to the UUP, uh, and of course to the SDLP, Sinn Féin, the Alliance Party, and the Greens, and so on. And we do that all the time. Um, so, but it's really important that that people would understand that in Westminster right now, the only voice that voices that people hear effectively our DUP voices in the context of Brexit. Uh, and that is not a balanced voice from Northern Ireland. That is, that is telling a story 
uh, of Northern Ireland that is um, uh, that balances the opinions and concerns and fears of all communities, uh, and that is why um, you know when people say to me, well, you know, can you can you get a deal with the DUP? I always say, look, this isn't about a deal with the DUP. It's about a deal with all parties in Northern Ireland trying to find a middle ground position that everybody can live with, but that does the job comprehensively in terms of protecting the island of Ireland. Uh, and that's the way we'll continue to approach this. Uh, we respect the DUP, we, we must listen to them, uh, try to take on board genuine concerns, but we must listen to the other parties too. Uh, and that is what we have done, that's what Michelle Barnier has done, that is what Theresa May has done. To her credit, I think Theresa May has made commitments to the island of Ireland, to unionism and nationalism and to the Irish government and she has followed through on those commitments fully uh, and has faced down people in the British system who simply want to ignore the complexity and the fragility of politics in Northern Ireland uh, and the dangers that may flow from that with a bad Brexit outcome uh, and um, I have to say that uh, while of course I say all the time that Michel Barnier has delivered for us and delivered for the EU uh, I believe that the British government and Theresa May has also delivered uh, on the commitments that she's made. Uh, and I think she's earned a lot of friends in Ireland as a result of that. Right, I, want to, I want to move on because I'm conscious that you're due to be speaking um, in a few short minutes um, on the main floor. Um, I think it's always important in a setting like this to mention Fianna Fáil. Um, we, <laughs> we, had, we had Lisa Chambers in on the podcast just a few days ago when we were asking her about how the negotiations on confidence and supply were going. Um, so I put the same question to you. Yeah, of course you can. Um, uh, I'm not sure why Fianna Fáil have to come into the conversation all the time, but I, 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 uh, this is your interview, so happy to comment. Um, the, um, I think they're going well. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of respect between the two parties. Um, I think both teams are, are experienced. Um, we recognise that this is not a negotiation between a government and an opposition party. It's an, it's an equal negotiation between two political parties of similar size. Um, we're conscious of the fact that Fianna Fáil have facilitated government uh, for the last number of years through a confidence and supply agree uh, agreement which is new. Uh, I think they did what they did a few years ago for the good of the country. Um, and um, after a very long and tortuous process. Um, and so I am hopeful uh, that uh, in a spirit of respect, uh, we can negotiate ourselves into a position where we create a, a platform uh, to provide certainty for a little bit longer. Um, uh, in particular, to allow this government to manage through Brexit and beyond, I hope. Uh, because I think that does need to be uh, in place uh, 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 to ensure that Leo Varadkar and myself and others can plan for our response to whatever Brexit outcome happens. Um, but look, so far the negotiations have really been about briefings and ensuring that both sides have the information that they need to be able to make important political decisions. Our political editor, Pat Leahy, who was around here somewhere, I think, oh, he's just over, over there. there, right, only, only feet away from me, uh, is suggesting in his column in the, in, in the Irish Times this morning that the subject of the optimal moment for calling an election, driven by some of what's been happening with Brexit, has been the cause of a lot of debate within the party over the last few days. Is, that, is he right? Well, look, I mean, you know, we're coming to the end of the Compton Supply Agreement. Um, I don't think it's reasonable for a government uh, to govern without some kind of an agreement that, that ensures that we don't limp from week to week not knowing if there's going to be an election called. Um, you can't govern like that. 
Um, so we have to find a way of, as a minority government, continuing to provide some stability and certainty in Irish politics. We know what political uncertainty brings. You know, take a look across the Irish Sea and you can see what's happening in Westminster. We need to respond to that uncertainty and in some ways that political chaos with, in my view, responding by saying, well, at moments of threat, national threat to Ireland, we need to work together, the two big parties in particular, uh, to provide a platform of certainty and predictability so that we can then move on and make the decisions that we need to protect Ireland and Irish people. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. So, Pat, we heard what Simon Coveney had to say, and now we've heard what Leo Varadkar had to say in his leader's speech. And the centrepiece of that very much was a, a quite striking commitment to increasing the, the level at which uh, income tax is levied, up to 50,000 per year from a current, I think, 34 or thereabouts. So that's, that's quite a dramatic tax-cutting commitment. Um, it seems to tie in with something you were saying in your column this morning, which was that Fine Gael essentially needed to put some strong, attractive policy in front of the electorate. Yeah, I, I point I was making, I think, um, was, was was that there needed to be a message coming out of this Ordesh, but it needed to be what pointing at what message Fine Gael will put before the electorate when it goes uh, to the country, which you know maybe in the next couple of months, maybe uh, maybe longer than that, we don't know. I. The reason I was making that point is that I hear an awful lot of chat about the election, about the timing of the election, about the mood music, the sort of campaign that Leo Varadkar is going to run, rushing around the country with his sleeves rolled up, projecting this image of a young leader for a young country, and so on and so on. What I hear less about is what message they will actually be giving to the voters. And... I think that Leo Varadkar has started that work in the speech today. There's no doubt that the central message uh, in the speech, when you strip it back and the headlines in tomorrow's newspapers, will be about this big tax-cutting pledge. To be honest, I'm slightly surprised that that is the direction that they have chosen. I think if you look at public concerns at the moment, they're more directed around public services, health service, uh, housing, of course, cost of living is something that's coming up in all the parties' private research, uh, I'm told. But, you know, we've just had a budget where tax cuts were dwarfed by spending increases by a ratio of about 12 to 1. Now we see this rhetorical, at least, pivot back to tax cuts. I'm not sure that that isn't slightly incoherent. Now, I've no doubt but that Fine Gael will run on a strong tax-cutting message in the, uh, in the next election, aimed at uh, the people who get up in the morning and so on, and they will probably have that section of the debate to themselves. But I'm just not sure that's where public demand is uh, at the moment, as evidenced by the pressures that led uh, to that, that, that divide in the recent sure, budget. And you've been arguing um, that the political centre of gravity has been moving to the left over the last two or three years and that Leo Varadkar has moved with it. 
Yeah, and I think that's evident again from uh, from the budget, but also you know as a gauge of public concern, you know. There's always an appetite out there for tax cuts. There's no doubt about that. Who doesn't like to have more money in their pocket? But I think that the central animating uh, subject of our politics at the moment is the failures in housing and in health. That's what. That's where public concern seems to lie, and that's something that won't be addressed by uh, by tax cuts. Now, perhaps, you know. And to a certain extent, this often happens in Irish politics. People think they can ride both horses at once. Uh, but um, I, I'm, I'm slightly surprised by it, I have to say. Because, and I don't have my pocket calculator to hand, Fiac, uh, but I know that shifting bans in this way, shifting the point at which you know, the operator mm. tax uh, cuts in, is, you know, has a really significant effect on the public finances. You know, if this commitment were to be implemented it would drastically reduce the amount of revenue available through income tax. Yeah, he's making quite a substantial uh, promise or pledge here. If you look at the tax package in the last two budgets since he became leader of Fine Gael, he did signify that he wants to do this almost immediately upon becoming leader. He said, well, the Confidence Supply Agreement says there are tax cuts. The understanding was that it would be USC cuts only. He changed that, so now we have a blend of USC reductions and this kind of gradual increasing of the threshold where people hit the higher rate of income tax. So he obviously believes this is a priority. He said it before. So in a way, we shouldn't be surprised by this, but this, the magnitude of the promise is certainly something that wasn't expected, going from 36 to 50 grand over a five-year period. Now, that's clearly based on a number of, 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 of fundamentals. One, they're still in government. Two, they're in a majority government because they're not going to be able to do this in the next budget if that's what they want. The, the, the kind of set pattern of tax cuts is, as we just said there, with Fianna Fáil. So maybe, as Pat says, like the centre of gravity has shifted. But just if you look at his, his kind of public statements and comments in recent weeks, the one about health uh, staff, you know, that was quite aimed at that section of the electorate, that this policy announcement is aimed at as well, those people who go up early in the morning, reminding people what he really believes. You get the impression that he does this from time to time. He kind of operates within the strictures of confidence supply, spends a lot of money, but then feels he has to remind people, actually, this is who I am. And I think this is what we're seeing here. And you just wonder if he believes that. Don't forget the last general election campaign saw Fine Gael in the lead up to talk about a US style taxation system. Absolutely, yeah. Completely backfired on them. They had to change course in the middle of a campaign and shift towards public spending increases. He clearly, and the people around him clearly believe, that the time has come maybe for that message to be played out again, not in such a fashion, but that tax is what people want to talk about again, that maybe the last war was public services, the next war is tax, and maybe that's what he feels this is about. It does certainly provide Fine Gael with a point of difference, probably with all the other parties with whom it will be competing for seats at the next election, Pat, because we know more or less where Mial Martin stands as sees Fianna Fáil as a social democratic party uh, and pretty much all the other parties are to, are to the left of that. Yeah. So it, 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 it clears a, a patch of ground for Fine Gael. Bar perhaps the challenge of Renewa, which uh, I think is unlikely to be substantial uh, in the next election. It does, um, it does, as you say, clear that patch of ground. It gives Fine Gael a, a distinctive message that none of the other parties are likely to be... Um, are likely to be running on. But it does, it is at odds from where the general direction of public 
discourse and the perceived wishes of the mm. public have been. And going back to the point about the last budget, politici- Irish politicians are really good at reacting to what people want. They're so close to, you know, comparison to other political systems. Our, 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 our politicians are so close to people on the ground that they're very good at at reflecting what people want. Sometimes that's a weakness in governance as well as a strength in politics. But the budget was a reflection of what politicians thought that people wanted. And it was heavily uh, uh, skewed towards public spending increases rather than tax cuts. Now we're seeing a U-turn on that. And I think that is a significant departure uh, if it is followed up on by Leo Varadkar. Makes a more interesting conversation as well in the run-up to election, doesn't it, Fick? If there is a, if there is some ideological difference to be played it's out and argued, the question will be where, you know, if all that money isn't going into the Exchequer, well, what gets cut or doesn't get invested mm. in, or indeed perhaps that's what other de- taxes are, the ra- detail are raised instead. That's the detail we have yet to see. And that's the honest conversation that politicians haven't been good at, and we'll have to see. And they tried to do it in the last election, Fine Gael, and they got completely tripped up over it because their, their explanation for how they were going to spend money in the fiscal space, yada, 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 was correct. It was just so convoluted that nobody understood it, and they could be tripped on, up on it quite easily. But it is curious, like, when he took over as leader last year, the, the, the message in the months after was, you will know what we stand for when, like, it was assumed it would happen quite quickly. It didn't quite happen. But I just wonder now, are we seeing this play out with this speech? It's the latest step in that. This is what we stand for. And almost defining himself against, as Pat says, the broad swathe of the rest of the doll. Like, uh-huh. the rest of the doll is left and centre-left. And you just wonder... Given that we saw a recent week's Brendan Howland saying, I have red lines I'm not going to the government with, and they are a 16 billion housing package, you know, very little tax cuts, yada, yada, yada. If Radker is saying this, who is he going to form a government with after an election? Who are his soulmates in politics? Who is a ready-made coalition partner? And you could see a situation where it's this Fine Gael, heavily focused on tax cuts versus a social democratic front. Fianna Fáil, the Greens, the Social Democrats, Labour. And that's going to be really interesting, I think, if this continues on this path. It's also, though, you know, I think the detail to watch out for in advance of the next election, if and when that comes, assuming Fine Gael stay on this tax-cutting, uh, uh, this ca- tax-cutting track, will be, well, OK, so where will you not increase public spending? If you're spending sure. this much money on tax cuts, what does that mean in terms of increasing public spending uh, are not increasing public spending in uh, in other areas. At the same time, I, I have a sense that this is more. This is truer to to who Leo Varadkar is. Leo, it is, Leo yes, yeah, absolutely. Is. It is. It is more authentically Varadkar, and perhaps more authentically Fine Gael as well. And you know, in an age when we are told that voters prize authenticity in their politicians, you know, perhaps this gives him an edge. And actually, one of the advantages that Leo Varadkar as a political brand brings to elections is that people generally think he calls it as yeah. it is. That's he said it. that himself. You listened to his interview with Marion Finucane a few weeks ago. He was asked about, oh, you're always accused of being obsessed with spin. He goes, well, my main strength is people think I tell it like it is. And therefore, the opposition tries to undermine my strength by accusing me of being obsessed with spin. But he thinks that his main asset is, I'm a straight talker, people believe what I say when I say it, and maybe this is evidence of it. Can I ask you, Fiuk, what, I mean, you've been floating around this conference all, all, all day. 
What's the overall general mood? I got the impression from the conversation with Simon Coveney, I was reminded of the fact that Brexit was an electoral boon for, um, for Fine Gael about a year ago. They got a bump in the polls immediately after the initial agreement in, in 2017. They, they look pretty good uh, this week. They've maintained a kind of a discipline about not blowing their own trumpet, more or less, with a couple of exceptions. More or less. Are they, um, yeah, the, the Taoiseach himself failed to do so, uh, failed most signally <laughs> to do so in the, in the dull. But generally, I mean, this is, th that element, that very important element of, of government policy at the moment is going well from party political view for, for Fine Gael, isn't it? Yeah, if what... The withdrawal agreement, if that is passed through the House of Commons, big if, as we all know, that is a huge achievement for this government and for the civil service as well, to keep people involved there too. But it is a huge achievement for this government and they anticipate some bounce off the back of it. Not only do they anticipate the bounce, Fianna Fáil are ready for it too. They expect that Fine Gael will go up from a position of mid to low, or low to mid 30s, up slightly higher. You could see them go to 36, 37. I think in our poll after the initial protocol, was agreed last year they went to 36 percent that's right they it's got an eight beyond, they yeah. got an eight point jump last year yeah. and that is kind of seared into yeah. their memory that, in a way that, i think that hasn't they haven't dropped below 30 on a consistent basis since then a couple of polls have had them sub 30 but that leap they made in december has been maintained they fell back four or five points but they've maintained that position in the early 30s and i think that if the belief is that they make another leap on the back of this they can make one or two percentage points stick. So I think there is a confidence that what they've done in the last week will stand to them in the long run. Um, but does it mean that they're going to go to the country anytime soon? I'm not quite sure about that. I think it all depends on Brexit. Yeah, I, I, I'm you not know, quite sure about that. Once, like, once there is a, yeah. a settlement in place. So if this deal is ratified and goes through, then I think we are we're looking at an election in mm. at least the middle distance, mm. if not before then. The first three or four months decision, of next year. Uh, I think no government will want to fight it in January, February, March, probably, but, uh, but certainly the way is clear for an election if the, uh, if the Brexit deal sticks. If it doesn't, then an election, I think, is off, is off the agenda, not least because Micheál Martin has guaranteed this government until next March, but I think that you would be in a sort of a position that no election could feasibly take place until the future direction of Brexit was, uh, was clear, whether that took, you know, until, until the exit date in March or whether it took beyond that because of an extension. The only caveat being, I would say, that if, if an agreement to extend the confidence supply deal is reached before Christmas one or the other of the two leaders will have to decide to break it next March or April and that is a call they'll have to make then Okay, we should leave it on that, we'll continue to discuss it Fiak and Pat, thanks for joining us And that's it from this edition of Inside Politics Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon Remember, you can find us on irishtimes.com slash politics or you can get us through iTunes or your preferred podcast provider You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter Until the next time, thanks for listening